Good morning. I believe in the power of story. I believe in people's personal stories. That's why I've been, I am looking forward to reading some of the biographies that have been written or autobiographies that have been written from this congregation. This is part of my story. And I ask you um, for your, I, I guess, you know, your feedback. I ask you for your prayer uh, as I continue on this journey. Last year, I had a dream. One of those that makes that, that strong impression that you, um, you're going to remember a couple years later. I was back in college and finals were approaching. It's long about November, something like that. And I realized I had not gone to any class that semester. And, and I don't know why, it's just sort of like, eh, didn't feel like it, didn't thought I'd catch up later. I don't know what. But um, in this dream, I suddenly realized that um, I got to have to do something quick. So I ran around to all my professors trying to see if I could do like one final term paper that would show them that I know everything that I need to know. I don't, and I just know, I, I knew I needed to, you know, try to figure out how to pass the class. I don't know exactly what happened. My dream ended. But sometimes that panicky feeling is not just in a dream for me. Sometimes it's a feeling that jolts me awake just as I'm about to go to sleep. And it's that ominous feeling that time is running out. And that will keep me awake for a while. Running out for what, you might ask? It's certainly what I ask myself. Uh, you can play multiple choice with me. What is my time running out for? A, finish this to finish the sermon. It's true. I finished it at like 8.15 this morning. B, to catch up on projects at work. C, to write my book. Time's running out for D, exercising enough to stay healthy. E, to get a photo display ready for Jess's wedding. F, all of the above. I think you know the answer is F, all of the above. These are all plausible answers and some are more true than others. But there's other possible answers that I'm running out of time to do that run a little deeper. Guess with me. Is it A, running out of time to improve my relationship with Keith? B, to be a more proactive friend? C, to figure out teenage quintuplet relationships? D, to be the mom and mother-in-law I'd like to be? E, all of the above. Eh. Again, the answer to these could be all of the above. And I have a sense of angst about all of them. But the real source of my sense of time that is running out goes even deeper. I am afraid that my time is running out for me to, quote unquote, get right with God. I'm running out of time to have an intimate, trusting, honest, and faithful relationship with Jesus. I'm running out of time to learn to really trust and to follow Jesus the way he longs for me to do. So let's talk a little bit about this running out of time business. Some of you might look at me and scoff and say, <laughs> you have a long way to go. 
Others might be like the clerk at the store who said, should I take some of those groceries out of your bag so they're not so heavy for you to carry? I, I blame it on the white hair. Um, and then there are children that who I will not mention because you know them who say, are you going to be still be alive when we have children? So I do admit that I'm having a little more trouble with the pictures that accompany the obituaries in the paper. Too many of them look like they remember riding in cars with vinyl seats that got so hot you could burn your skin and they had to crank the car windows to get relief. I bet they went to college when MTV was just beginning and typed their term papers on typewriters while drinking tab soda. They probably even know who killed JR. I don't think I'm at the end of the semester yet, but I am more aware than ever that medical tests can change my life in an instant. And we've seen medical tests change lives of people in this congregation in an instant. Conversations between me and my friends revolve more and more about how about our thinking and how our bodies aren't as nimble, we as trustworthy as they used to be. No matter how I look at it, I have less years left to go than I have lived so far. I'm definitely past midterms. So when I wake up at night with the sense that time is running out, when, when I'm, what I really want to know is if I'm going to pass the final exam when I die. Will I get to the end of life and have God say to me, like he did to Jesus when he was baptized, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased? Or will he say, sorry, no heaven for you. You gave up on me. You didn't finish the race. Because you see, it is not just time that's running out. It's my motivation, my faithfulness, my certainty about what to believe about God and Jesus is tested every day. And sometimes I think it would be easier to stop trying to believe. But I don't want to, because as the psalmist said, as I have said, I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord is good. I have felt his presence and I have felt his love. It's just that I'm afraid to trust it. And most of all, I don't trust myself. I'm afraid that I am losing my motivation to keep pursuing a relationship with Jesus that I want. And I believe Jesus wants a relationship that is based in love, not fear. Let me tell you a bit about how I came to this point. From my youth, I have always wanted to follow Jesus. Like many of you, I asked Jesus to forgive my sins and to come live inside my heart and soul. As a teen and a young adult, I tried my hardest to follow Jesus, doing whatever he taught his disciples. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It fit right into the messages that I got at Mennonite school, at church, and youth group. They told me I needed to be fully and completely submitted to God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Now, being an intelligent child who liked to be in charge, submission was a very hard word for me. 
dad didn't make it any easier because he thought it was his God-given responsibility to bring me, my mother, and my sisters into submission to God and to him. To him, love meant keeping me in the fold of God to ensure my eternal life. My part was to do whatever he said and accept my place in the hierarchy of God, man, woman, and children. Uh, somewhere in that women, children, lower caste system. This means no disagreeing, no rebelling, no talking back, no discussion, or definitely not going around his back. If I did those things, dad brought us back in line with humiliation, punishment, rage, shame. At church, I learned I needed to confess my sins, forgive my dad, and try to obey him. So I became an expert in asking dad's forgiveness until one day he ran out of forgiveness and decided there was no point in forgiving someone who obviously wasn't sincere about submitting to him. So you can imagine that submission wasn't a good word for me. I knew that God was a better father than my father, and I had genuinely felt that forgiveness and love from God. But I feared that I would never fully submit, I feared that to fully submit to God might mean that I never get married, never have kids, have to live in Africa. I probably couldn't name all the bad things that I thought might happen to me if I submitted or all the good things that I would miss out on. But the bottom line is I knew that anything I wanted to do would have to be placed under the lordship of Jesus Christ because he knew best. I tried. I was so serious about that, that when Keith asked me to marry him, I asked him to wait a week for my answer because I wanted to pray about it and be sure that that was what God wanted, not just what I wanted. Yeah, that was harsh. And I'm, I publicly say I am sorry about that. As the next 35 years of my life unfolded, I have wrestled with this idea of submission. I have wrestled with the concepts of heaven and hell. I have wrestled with what it means to follow Jesus. I have wrestled with what I believe and don't believe about Jesus and Christianity and other faiths. I have wrestled with my own hypocrisy. I told my children that following Jesus was the most important thing in life, but money became important too. And so did education and safety and image and power and fun and whatever else I wanted. My spiritual life has been like that of a poorly trained bloodhound that keeps finding the scent of Jesus, but I spend just as much time barking at birds, digging hot dogs out of trash cans, chasing my tail in a circle, and running around the neighborhood with a pack of chihuahuas. Unlike the bloodhound, I look like I'm doing the job of following Jesus. I help others. I go to church. Most of the time, I talk about spiritual things with my friends. I read spiritual books. I've attended some contemplative classes. I post Christian things on social media. I see a spiritual director. I write things that support justice for the disenfranchised. I give money. I work for a Mennonite organization. How much more faithful can you be? But like Martha, I am running around doing things, trying to please Jesus, make him happy, impress him with my commitment. 
I kind of want him to say, wow, Martha, you are one impressive woman. Look at all you can handle. You can cook, you can clean, you can multitask like no other. I bet you can even listen to me talk to Mary while you work. You amaze me. But he doesn't. And I wonder if Martha had a momentary fear of missing out on what Jesus is saying quietly to Mary. Maybe she momentarily envied their quiet peacefulness, but then her mind started spinning. If Mary could just run to the market, she could get those fresh majule dates that I would stuff with goat cheese and I'd roll them in nuts. He'd love them. And then he'd like me too. But Jesus didn't want Mary to go and Mary's not offering. Instead, he advises Martha that Mary has chosen the better thing. Now, as a person who was a lot like Martha, I suspect her intent was to please Jesus, but his answer might have felt like a slap in the face. I'd like to believe, though, that Jesus followed up on his comment to Martha about, to Martha about Mary's chosen the better thing and invited her to come and sit with them because he enjoyed being with her, too. I understand a little bit of what Mary may have been feeling. One very memorable time when I was on a spiritual retreat at a sweet cottage in Conestoga, some of you have probably been there. I was praying and I know I was troubled about many things though I, I can't tell you now what they were. And in my prayer, I pictured myself coming into the cottage and finding Jesus sitting at the kitchen table. My immediate impulse was to bow. He invited me to come closer, and I did, and I found myself at the feet of Jesus, head bowed, waiting. I had submitted myself, or as Henry Nouwen says, emptied myself. And in this prayer, Jesus put his hand on my head. And as he did, peace flooded over me. I was enveloped in Jesus' love. He understood. He accepted. He loved me. I didn't need words. We were just together. And that was enough for a long time. That experience, which happened now probably more than 10 years ago, has stayed with me. And I've had other encounters with Jesus like that once in a while, though they're not as memorable. But they only come when I am vulnerable. They only come when I am willing to submit and completely trust in Jesus' love. And that, I think, is the key to what I missed about submission. Um, submission isn't about surrendering yourself to hurt. It is about surrendering yourself to complete and ultimate, all-encompassing love. Recently, I've been reading a book by Henry Nouwen called Following Jesus, Finding Our Way Home in an Age of Anxiety. The book, which was published in 2019, has content that Nouwen said or wrote, but it wasn't published until 2019. I highly recommend the book. Following Jesus, finding our way home in the way in the age of anxiety. Nowen writes about Jesus welcoming us into his home in much the same way as I described coming into the spiritual retreat cottage. He says, um, Jesus is offering an invitation 
to come into the house of God. It is an invitation to enter into God's dwelling place. It's not an invitation with harsh demands. It is the story of the Lamb of God saying to us, come, come to my house. Look around. Don't be afraid. Long before Jesus's radical call to leave everything behind, Jesus says to the disciples, come, have a look where I am. Jesus is a host who wants us around him. Jesus is the good shepherd of the Old Testament who invites his people to his table where the cup of life overflows. This image of God inviting us to his home is used throughout scripture. The Lord is my house. The Lord is my hiding place. The Lord is my awning. The Lord is my refuge, like we heard this morning. The Lord is my tent. The Lord is my temple. The Lord is my dwelling place. The Lord is my home. The Lord is the place where I want to dwell all the days of my life. God wants to be our room, our home. He wants to be anything that makes us feel at home. She is like a bird hugging us under her wings. She is like a woman holding us in her womb. She is infinite mother, loving host, caring father, the good provider who invites us to join him. There is a sense of being that is safe, that is good. In this dangerous world of violence, chaos, and destruction, there is this place that we want to be. We want to be in the house of God, to feel safe, to be embraced, to be loved and cared for. With the psalmist, we say, where else does my heart want to stay but in the house of the Lord? That makes being with God sound rather lovely, doesn't it? I want that. I want more of, more of that, or at least part of me does. I believe that only in Jesus can I be truly secure as I walk through COVID, political failings, aging, life's decisions, relationships. We've talked this year in church about abiding in the vine of Jesus so that we can bear fruit, right? Is that not abiding in the vine? And yet part of me still resists submission to the love of God. I have trouble trusting in that everlasting love, especially when I read some of the Old Testament descriptions of God and even the New Testament's vine and branches passages, because it seems to be full of ifs. In John 15, 9 says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that your joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So Jesus seems to, tells us he loves us, but he seems to leave that little open-ended possibility that if we don't follow his commands, we might not remain in his love. Yikes. See why I wonder if I'll fail the final? I'm confused about what's my responsibility to remain in God's love and what's God's responsibility to hold on to me. Is this all about my efforts? Where is the Holy Spirit in this? Well, Nowen takes the whole chapter of John 15 and turns it into an invitation. Here's just an excerpt. Listen carefully. Jesus wants you and me to become part of the intimate family of God. The intimate relationship between the father and son has a name. It is spirit, Holy Spirit. I want you to have my spirit. 
I want you to have the most intimate part of me so that the relationship that is between you and God is the same as between me and God, which is a divine relationship. What you need to hear from your heart is that you are invited to dwell in the family of God. You are invited to be part of that intimate communion right now. Wow. I am so drawn to that, and yet this is how my mind works. Before I can even enter the house of God, I need to pull off layers of armor. I know that you all have this metaphorical picture of putting on the armor of God from Ephesians, but you're going to have to picture me as that night's arch nemesis. This is what it is like for me to trust. First, this knight has to lay down her sword, trusting that she won't have to lash out at God to protect her heart. She decides to take off her helmet and trust that the words she's going to hear and the eyes that look back at her aren't full of disgust. She'll take the chance that if she takes off her arm armor, God won't twist her arm behind her back and threaten to give her a brain tumor if she can't quit being so self-sufficient and arrogant. And if she, and if she should choose to unbuckle, unbuckle the leg armor, so she can, then she can humble herself, let go of her pretense, confess her feelings and her fears. And then eventually she'll decide to take off her breastplate and trust that God will feel the beat of her heart and infuse it with love. But as I write this, I realize I'm going at this all wrong. I don't have to do this before I enter the house of God, Jesus's house. I need to enter Jesus's house and let him help me take that armor off. Yes, that's better. Isn't that what John meant in 1 John when he says that perfect love casts out fear? That's what I want. That's what I long for when I wake up at night and feel like time is running out. I want to know that Jesus will not let me go. I want to be sure that I won't let him go. I want to know that he will hold me, accept me, love me, in spite of my lashing out, my fears, my lack of faith, and my pushing away. God calls us to follow him. We often think of that at this church and in my life as working for justice, serving our community, helping those in need. We are really good at being Martha at this church. But could it be that Jesus is calling us to follow him to his house and to come and dwell with him? Then he can tell us what to do next and show us how to follow. So back to multiple choice. I have choices when I awake and feel like time is running out. A, I could go watch Heartland and immerse myself in the seemingly endless episodes of teenage horse-filled drama until I fall asleep. B, I could listen to Henry Nowen on Audible and let him assure me of God's grace and love and desire for me. I could take some sleep medication. D, admit I'm scared and ask God to help me to want to hold on. 
eat, I could get out of bed and eat tortilla chips until the crunching calms me down. Like I said, all of these I have done, but I would like to add option F. Head toward the house of the Lord and ask if I can sit for a while. For Psalm 91 says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust.